0: I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad.
1: Welcome to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Kyle Kwas. This is episode 406 for September 20th, 2012. Today's guest is trumpeter and flugelhorn player Nadia Nordhaus. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel and Rob Grundell for the show's logo and the Jazz or Bust logo, respectively. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. You can find all 406 episodes so far of The Jazz Session at thejazzsession.com. However, I'm not going to be making my normal pitch for you to join the show today. And uh, the reason for that, and I'm not going to go into it on this episode, but is that the show is actually going to end at the end of October. And if you want to know more about that, just go to thejazzsession.com, and there's an announcement up there. And if you're a podcast subscriber you should have received, uh, yesterday on the 19th, you should have received a special announcement in your podcast feed. Uh, so either way, you can uh, check those out, and it has all the appropriate thank yous and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So please go listen there. My guest today, Nadia Nordhaus, uh, is someone I knew about from Darcy James Argue's Band. And when I was uh, coming back to New York for this brief run, I really wanted to interview a string of women performers because while I was on tour, I felt like it was kind of hard, at least in the places that I went, um, to find women who were making careers in jazz and it seemed like the show was, you know, getting kind of way off in being very male. <laughs> and uh, and I really prefer that it not be that way. So I sent out a call to some friends, you know, in the jazz world saying, send me the names of some women who I should know about. And uh, several people responded with Nadia Nordhaus's name. I'm so glad they did because uh, her record, which is uh, just her titled under her own name, uh, is really one of my favorite things uh, from 2012. I should mention that today, tonight actually, Thursday, September 20th, 2012, Nadia has a CD release gig, actually kind of a pre-CD release gig, because the album actually comes out uh, in a couple of weeks. But she's playing at the Jazz Gallery right here in New York City at 9 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. with Sarah Caswell on violin, uh, David Berkman on piano, and then, you know, Ike Sturm and Jared Schoenigan at just – maybe it gets better than that but it's not clear to me how uh on bass and drums and also my pal James Shipp will be there on percussion and uh, vibraphones <laughs> or as it's listed here pandero cajon and shakery things so my guess is that James wrote that himself so anyway that's tonight september 20th at 9 p.m. and 10:30 p.m. at the jazz gallery the first set is 15 bucks the second set is 10 bucks and uh, you should definitely go to that show because Nadia is fantastic and uh, the jazz gallery is a cool place and they could use your support. So do that, okay? And tell them the jazz session sent you. <laughs> I'm not sure who them might be, but you can tell somebody if you want. To. So anyway, uh, Nadia's record is fantastic and I went to see her with uh, the Diva uh, Orchestra backing Marlena Shaw at Dizzy's and then the next night got a chance to uh, hang out with her a bit and conduct this interview. So I hope you enjoy it. Here's some music from her new record. Which, as I mentioned, comes out uh, at the beginning of October and is well worth your time. And then we'll hear my conversation with Nadia. My guest is a trumpeter and flugelhorn player Nadia Nordhaus. How are you? <laughs>
0: I'm very well.
2: I'm very well. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks I for just, getting it right. <laughs> my pleasure. I
1: had to look up from your name, you know, written in front of me on the cover of the CD. Right. Um, so uh, this record, I have to say, this is uh, on my first few listens. I think one of my favorite things that's come out this year. It's oh wow! Really, really gorgeous. Thank record. you. I'm really enjoying it. Wow! High praise. Uh, and. I guess we can start maybe just by talking about the folks who are on this record, because I think Mm -hmm. the, I think kind of the, the intermixture of those voices, both their instrumental voices and their, their personalities and musical ideas Mm -hmm. really goes a long way toward Mm -hmm. making this music what it is. Right. Um,
2: Well, um, on the front line, we've got, well, obviously I'm playing trumpet and flugelhorn, but we've got Sarah Caswell on violin and she is one of the most brilliant musicians that I know. she, plays classical, she plays jazz, she plays all sorts of things. But whenever she plays, she's just so tasteful and musical and gorgeous. So she's also one of my best friends, if you can't <laughs> tell. <that laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think with um, the good thing about having the trumpet and, and violin together as a as front line in this particular style of music is that it does cross a little bit of the classical jazz boundary. And so... Um. Yeah, I guess it's a little bit unusual, but for me, I just wanted Sarah's sound on the record, and I like to blend with other instruments. So, um, so that's why I chose Sarah.
1: Yeah, and I think as much for me as as crossing classical boundaries, I think it crosses mm-hmm. almost, uh, and this is a word that's almost meaningless, but more mm-hmm. kind of folk boundaries, right? Or I mean, this, um, you know, the sound of the violin played the way she plays it on mm-hmm. this record, mm-hmm. I think, is much more akin to almost like. The way it's played in bluegrass music, or something, right, the way it's right. in the classical world, mm-hmm. especially given the both the melodicism, but also sometimes the angularity of your lines and your mm. writing. I think that mm. you know it's a perfect way to have a perfect place to have the violin for that reason. Right, I'd
2: right, cool. Um, and then on piano, we've got Jeffrey Keyser. so that that man can play no wrong. <laughs> it's incredible I remember just just hearing him play and I was just shaking my head like I can't I can't believe he just played that that's the coolest thing and luckily I was in an isolation booth because if I wasn't just shaking my head I was just laughing because it was just (laughs) he's you know obviously so amazing I mean I know I'm you know gushing a bit but it's it's how I feel I'm just thrilled to have these people on on the record and it was just so wonderful I can still remember like being in the studio and hearing all the sounds for the first time and it was just joyous, joyous for me. Um, so yeah, Jeffrey Keezer, um, and then we've got Joe Martin on the bass. And, um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's great too, obviously. Um, beautiful sound, beautiful sound and always in tune. I mean, he's like everything you want in a bass player, like rock solid musical can solo in any, signature you want he can yeah he can do it all so um so we've got joe and then we've got obed calver on drums so yeah he he's quite something too
1: <laughs> can you talk about actually putting the band together i mean you've, mm-hmm. you've chosen people from you know to some degree different some different generations different mm-hmm. places in the world right right uh, and it seems like it's a uh, you know, it's a challenge to pick from everybody who's available and figure right. out well, who do I want in this particular band for this you know, right. debut record. Right.
2: Right. Um, I guess a lot of the decisions were just um, gut feelings, mm-hmm. like just going on on I- intuition, um, but also just um, just trying to imagine what it would sound like with certain players. So, I mean, I spent I spent a lot of time putting the band together. Um, and obviously, like living in New York, you do accumulate quite a list of people to pick from. But, you know, some, some people jump out more than others. So, um, I guess it was just a matter of, you know, starting, you know, starting with Sarah and then, and, and Jeff, of course, and then, and then just trying to work out who would complement that. And then just kind of building from there and then adding a couple of guests. As well, so.
1: And did you already have the music written when you started putting the band together, or did that come later?
2: Um, let me think. I think, I think most of it was written. I mean, some of, some of the tunes date back 10 years. So definitely, <laughs> 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 definitely, since I've only been in New York for nine. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, I spent a good six months refining the tunes. So once I had the band together, then I went back through the charts and, um, fixed things up and arranged things and worked out. I mean, I kind of obsessed over it to, <laughs> to be completely honest, like working out solo orders and how, how it would sound like and what oh, what tracks should I start with and how should I organize it? And, and just all these, all these sorts of artistic decisions kind of plagued me for about six months before actually recording. So. Um, I, at the time I was working, um, at this music school in the afternoon, but I had the mornings free. So I used to get up really early and go in to the school. And then I would, I would write, um, no, I would play for 20 minutes and then write for 10 and go 2010, 20, 2010, 20, 2010, 20, and just, just keep doing that over and over. And then slowly, I had, you know, six months later, then I had, you know, a choice of, well, I actually had a choice of 12 tunes. Eight of them made it on the record. But just in terms of getting the arrangements together. And then I had, um, I had a gig in town and then I played those arrangements to a couple of composer friends of mine and, and who made a couple of little suggestions. So then had all that organized because I knew when it actually came time for the recording, the musicians are so busy that, you know, having them all in the one place in itself is a minor miracle. And it's, <laughs> And in terms of rehearsal time, there's not going to be a lot of opportunity. So I wanted to make sure that the charts were as clear as, as possible. So that was, that was my mission for a long time. we
1: In terms of uh, editing and revising the musical content, not mm-hmm. not the technical aspects of it, but the mm-hmm. actual musical content, did you just have to stop yourself at some point and say, Okay. This Enough? is done. Yeah.
2: Um uh, no, I think I just did it until it was done. Yeah. I'm a bit stubborn like that. Like I'll just I'll just keep keep going and I will not I will not I w I won't I, I won't finish until it, it you know, then I, I until I feel comfortable with
1: it. So you had some sense mm-hmm. with each tune of when that point had been
2: yeah touched. yeah I mean a lot of the tunes um, originally like when coming up with the actual con- um, concept for the tune or just the melody of the tune itself usually when I'm coming up with the melody for the tune that in itself will happen quite quickly and sometimes in the very rare occasion that will be it and the whole tune will be done in like five minutes <laughs> But other times, um, like there's one, one tune on the record in, in particular that the, the melody um, was the easiest part to write. That happened in about five minutes. And then to get the ending, the ending took me three months. And it drove me crazy. Like literally every day I would write an alternate ending and I still wasn't happy with it. And I kept going and kept going, you know, like the Terminator or something. Just Like, like come on, come on, I'll be back. So, um, yeah, until it was done and I'm like, okay, I think i think i got it
1: <laughs> and is that like a like almost like a physical feeling when you hit the right ending or you... i think
2: i think yeah i think it's i think the shoulders drop about two inches i'm like okay i think i think this is it i think this is cool this will do so yeah
1: yeah and you don't really have oh well, i guess you do in the studio but it seems in the jazz world we don't really have the luxury of you know the fade like fade right guitar solo and fade right or, you know, chorus right and
2: fade. no no i no, i can't no. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That would be so pet, much easier Pet peeve number <laughs> right, 379 yes. exactly. No that's not going to happen Can't figure out an ending Not right. going to happen
1: don't feel programmatic necessarily but they feel like they have backstories is that, right. is that the case for most people
2: yeah I guess they do I mean um, usually when I start writing something I usually write at the piano and usually when I, write, I start writing something um, like an, an idea or like a, a strong visual um, component will kind of present itself or if I'm feeling a certain way then that's Obviously, what I'll be thinking about as I write, and then that will become the story. Or um, if I want to, uh, if I'm thinking of of an event or thinking of a person, then then it's almost like I'm writing a little soundtrack for that event or for that person. So every every tune on the record does have a backstory, and I didn't actually think about that before. It was almost completed and, and people have, have commented how it sounds, you know, like a, like a soundtrack or, or the sound, the songs sound very personal. Oh, I hadn't, hadn't actually thought of that. It was just something that I did and didn't think about. So.
1: Can you tell me the backstory to one of these?
2: Um, yeah, let me, let me take a look. Which one? Which one's the most interesting? I mean, I can tell you where I was when I wrote all of these and I can, it's funny, I can, it's almost like I can, um, see how things were when I actually wrote it. So it's, I can remember like which piano and where and, you know, what was, what was going on.
0: It
1: almost becomes like a journal in that.
2: It does. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, let me, let me think. I mean, a lot of them, like say Mayfair, um, uh, my grandmother was Irish and her name was Mary Fairfax. So this was her, a tune that I wrote for her. Then I wanted it to be kind of joyous, um, and, and yeah, and exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she liked football. So there's a nice. lot of foot now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> But I mean, the one, the one that, you know, Magnolia, I wrote for, um, my sister who was kind of celebrating a kind of beautiful moment in her life. And so I wrote that one. And that was, um, that tune actually I hadn't, um, I hadn't played the piano for a really long time because I was originally a classical piano player and, you know, was made to do all the, you know, hours and hours of practice as a kid. And I just, you know, I got to a point I just couldn't, couldn't stand it. And then, um, I like to say we had a big fight, <laughs> 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 but I had this big exam and I hadn't, I hadn't prepared enough. And so I, I failed it. And I'm like, that's it. I quit. So I think I was about 14. And then I literally didn't play a note on the piano until I was, I think, 20, 22? Maybe. So it was a really, really long time. And then, um, at the time I was studying at the Victorian College of the Arts in Melbourne, um, on trumpet doing improv. And so I went into a practice room and then started playing the piano. And it was actually just quite emotional because I didn't realize how much I missed it. Um, so yeah. And then the tune kind of popped out and it was literally, you know, five, five minutes. And that's the complete arrangement of that, (laughs) of that tune. So it's, it's weird. Like some of them just kind of pop out. And I mean, I can't, I feel like I can't really take credit for it. It's just something that happens. And then, you know, I guess I'm just the first one to write it down or something. I don't know.
1: It's interesting that so much emotion could be actually bound up in a specific instrument. I mean, right. the, you know, that it's actually, it's not just like, oh, I'm exasperated with music, but mm. it's actually the physical act of playing the piano. Though.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Like, I, I mean, it was such a huge part of my life. Like, it was my, my first instrument. It's all when i was a kid apparently i mean i don't really remember because i was so young that i would just play it all day like i just completely loved it and i had this really amazing amazing teacher um and she always made things really fun um and me? she her name was amy amy scoby and so i was like i was like um her husband was a trumpet player and i was like almost like a surrogate child or something. So I used to spend hours at, at their place and, um, you know, making peanut butter cookies and, <laughs> 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 you know, playing hide and seek and all the important things that you do when you're in a music lesson. And, um, yeah, so they were like a huge part of my life until I was about seven and then we went on family vacation. And then when I came back, um, I learned they were killed in a car accident. Oh, my God. Yeah. So um, that was obviously traumatic (laughs) um and so that's um why I play trumpet because Steve played played the trumpet so um yeah the next year when I went into third grade um yeah, I had a choice of picking up a band instrument. So I'm like, well, of course it's the trumpet. (laughs) And I thought, oh, this will be easy. Like there's only, there's only one cleft to read and you know, oh, like there's what, three valves. Ah, this is cool. Yeah. This is, this is, this is much easier than piano. And I was so wrong, so wrong. But anyway, I've tried, I've tried many times to, to give it up, but it just keeps
1: coming back. So. And what, but does the piano play primarily a compositional role now in your life? Or do you yeah, use it for other things? Yeah.
2: I just, yeah, it just, um, oh, I guess I always, it's almost like the the piano is like a little, like a private, it's like a private instrument, I mm-hmm. guess. Like I don't play it for people. No one, like even my closest friends haven't really heard me play. Um, it's just something that I keep to myself, which is a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> I guess i mean it's not it's not something that intentional, but i just i mean it's something that i um you know that i just it's one of my favorite things to do is just to sit at the piano and just write and they all just you know seem to be in a very similar vein um and then i can try and you know alter them later and um you know kind of change it up a little bit but yeah it's definitely a joyous thing for me is to. To play the piano.
1: Do you write differently if you mm-hmm. write using your trumpet or just straight to paper?
2: Um, I don't tend to write at the trumpet at all. Hmm. Yeah. Which is also a bit weird, I guess, being a trumpet player. But, um, I guess in terms of like the, I don't know, the harmonic information, I guess I get that from a piano because a lot of it is trial and error. So I'll just, you know, play around on, on the piano, you know, big kind of you know my (laughs) my version of chords you know I don't really I tried doing um jazz piano for a while but I guess I don't know just for me it I couldn't I couldn't do it because I would turn that into almost like written music like everything like the chords I would like memorize the voicings like with it was almost like a physical memory so then when I come back to the chords I'm just like
0: oh gosh
2: (laughs) Start again, you know. <laughs> so that was, that was a bit of a nightmare. So I've, I guess I've got my own little, little way of playing it, but I'll come up with, with chords or I'll experiment. Um, yeah, a lot of kind of left hand different. Sometimes if I'm trying to find a voicing or, or find a bass note for a melody, then I'll just kind of, you know, go chromatically down. And so obviously I can't really do that on the trumpet. Um, but when I'm playing at the piano, I can, I can think about what keys would be better on the trumpet. So after I write it, sometimes I'll change keys. So it's a little bit more trumpet friendly. Otherwise everything will be in E or (laughs) B or something, which is, you know, C sharp for me, which is, which is not good.
1: (laughs) Do you ever write things that are hard to play on the trumpet?
2: Yes. And then I, I tend to not play them. Like I have, I have, books of compositions and and the ones that are played in public are only a very small um number of them so it's almost like sketchbooks um of ideas and then if i'm trying to you know if i've got a gig coming up and i want to um you know write something new for it, usually I'll just go back through the sketchbook and see whether there's an idea that I liked, and then either finish that idea or just, you know, put it in Sibelius or, you know, make it pretty <laughs> and and print it out. So.
1: Do songs feel feel different when you're playing them on the trumpet versus the piano? I don't just mean the physical feeling, but I also mean that.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like sometimes it's a bit weird. Sometimes I'm like, I think this is just best left as a piano piece, and other times I think this is so much better, you know, on a trumpet than it is than it is on the on the piano, and especially with the support of a whole band. Behind me, it's sometimes, you know, a, a tune, say, like Mayfair. Um, you know, that sounds much better with a band rather than <laughs> me, <laughs> me, you know, like pumping out some octaves in the left hand. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really, doesn't really, um, compare.
1: Will you talk about the moment, uh, in the studio when the tape started rolling for mm-hmm. the first take and mm-hmm. what that was like?
2: Mm-hmm. That was, um, Probably one of my favorite moments ever, I think, because, you know, this is my first album and I've been waiting such a long time to actually do something like this. Like, I really wanted, um, I'm a bit fussy, see, so I wanted the quality to be of a certain level, you know, not just, not just the, the actual compositions and the arrangements, but, you know, obviously the band, I wanted the highest quality band that I could and then, you know, the most important step when you're dealing with a recording, you know, like a, a physical recording is actually choosing the studio really well. So, um, so yeah, putting all that together and thinking about all these things and overthinking about these things for a really long time and then actually. Getting into your little isolation booth and you got the headphones on and, you know, John Coltrane's microphone in, <laughs> in front of you and all these crazy, crazy things like that. And then, you know, then the band starts playing and you're like, Oh, this moment is why I, I go through <laughs> the traumas of trying to, trying to pay rent, you know, is just for moments like this.
1: Was there something that you had to do to kind of set Set all of the preparation work behind you when you actually stepped into the isolation booth and it was time to just play the music?
2: Um, I think, I mean, I did try very much to just, to kind of separate that and go, okay, now, now just play, (laughs) now just play the trumpet. And I think to a certain extent that would, that just kind of happened naturally. Like as soon as I start playing, I'm not, you know, I'm not thinking too much about the drum part or, or the piano part. I'm just kind of let go of that you know which is hard sometimes because i do like to you know have a handle on whatever what's happening at any given moment you know you know i i guess a slight control freak i guess <laughs> if i'm going to be completely honest and i know it but you know hey what are you going to do
1: you made a uh, a decision that I, that I applaud. I mean, in this age when most people make their first album right after their first class finishes in their freshman year. Right. You actually waited to make a record. I
2: waited. I waited. Yeah. I mean, I graduated, um, from Manhattan School of Music in, uh, the master's program in 2005. So obviously I waited quite, quite a while. I recorded an EP, um, maybe two years later. And that just had five tracks, and that was just you know three three or four hours in a studio. And I listened to it, and I thought the band sounds great, but I'm not ready. It's not it's not what I want people to hear. I don't I you know I just I just felt like technically on the trumpet and in terms of the compositions, I'm like they're not. It's a little bit hurried, and it's not it's not something that I. I want my name on. So I remember um, reading this quote. I hope it's true because I've always (laughs) believed it. (laughs) But from Jeff Buckley and he said that he waited a long time to record Grace, which was his first album. And he said he just wanted to wait until he was ready and he was ready at 27. Um, And obviously that album is amazing. Um, And I'm a little bit older than 27, but, you know, I'm really – Quite happy with the way this turned out, like I'm like, okay, this is why i I waited so long, and this is why I put so much effort into it is to finally just have one <laughs> little square. <laughs> 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 with with my crazy name on it, and then you know I feel good.
1: So. I think it was Paul Blay who said something like, "You're going to hate your first dozen albums, so you may as well just make them and get it over with." Right. Which is a wholly other way right. to approach that. You just kind right. of skipped the hating the first dozen and went yeah. to the thirteenth uh, one. had. Yeah.
2: Liked. I I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I it it's weird because I guess in in a. Maybe it's a cultural thing, like Australia, you don't really go, Oh yeah, I really like what I did. Like, or, (laughs) or does, no one really does that. Everyone kind of, you know, plays everything down. But I mean, you know, after putting so much effort into it and energy and, and money and everything that I had and, you know, the best tunes that I'd written up, up to that point and like investing so much heart into it, then, I have to like it otherwise you know what's the point
1: <laughs> Yeah I I completely agree I, I wonder I know it's only just coming out so maybe it's too early mm-hmm. to know this but does do you feel yeah. like having made the record does it have any kind of professional impact for you or even just the way you envision yourself as a yeah. musician kind of moving in the world or the New York scene or?
2: Well I mean I would like to think that um people will hear it and people will like it that's I mean that's kind of important but um yeah I, I don't know what it's I don't know. I really have no <laughs> no clue whether it's gonna be well received or whether it's gonna get me more gigs or, or or whatever. You know, I mean you know, I I I did it so people would have a CD to listen to that they would possibly enjoy. And just if they had 45 minutes that they could sit and listen to it from start to finish and it would take them on a little journey and take them away from all the the noise and the computers and the, you know, bad coffee and the traffic and all the things that, you know, kind of surround everybody every day. So it was just like a little escape and that's, I mean, whether or not that's going to, you know, get me a gig at, you know, the jazz standard or something i don't i don't know i would like but you know <laughs> like we'll see we'll see i don't know i've got i've got no clue i'm kind of very curious
0: <laughs> yeah to
2: see because it's it's been such an investment and you know if you know thinking from a, a business perspective you would like some kind of return <laughs> um but i don't know i mean i'm i'm being optimistic and hoping that good things will happen but sure i'll see see what happens
1: In addition to this uh, project and your own bands, you also play in a number mm-hmm. of other people's ensembles. Mm-hmm. Will you talk about some of
2: mm-hmm. Um, Well, I play in Darcy James Argue's Secret Society, which is fun. <laughs> 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 and a trip. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, his music, you know, you know obviously a lot of the listeners have, have checked out his music. And if they haven't, perhaps, you know, they might like to
1: Um, and you all just finished recording recently
2: yeah the second album Brooklyn Babylon so and that itself was an incredible project because it was um, there was a strong visual element with that project as well with a live artist um, performing we did this run at at BAM and I mean just visually speaking it was very striking and um, very rich and I mean, he, Darcy's attention to detail and his work ethic are incredible. It's just amazing. So, and very inspiring. And so he definitely, you know, had a very high standard. And that shows, like, from every little detail, every little metronome marking, every little passage that was perfectly synced to, um, a video and all the cues with the, the artist were, were like perfectly aligned. And and the music itself, you know, was was beautiful and unusual and interesting.
1: So, and I'll I'll just mention that uh, Darcy tells the somewhat hair-raising story of. How close to not being true all of
0: that was uh, on an episode of
1: this show. So if folks want to check that out, it doesn't really pull any punches. Um, before you list other projects, though, you mm-hmm. said something there that mm-hmm. I think is important, which is talking about the the uh, relation to the visual aspect of the music, which mm-hmm. is something that I know has been a part of, of your mm-hmm. music making for years. Can you say some more about that?
2: Right. Well, I mean, I think I mean I wanted to be a filmmaker for a little while. Um, I think when I was still at school, like I did a course, like a video course and I would, you know, run around with a video camera and, and put these little films together. And of course, no one's ever seen them. And, you know, I don't even think they exist anymore, but I think there's always, I've always been drawn to the visual component. So I've done, um, I've put on gigs where I've had slides of photography and written suites of music that would correspond with each, with each slide. Um, I, I don't exactly know why, but it's just something that I like. So, um, and I, I guess a lot of people have said that when they, when they hear my music, they get a strong sense of visual, which I think is really cool. Like, I don't know how that happens considering you know, like it's 12 notes and right. <laughs> it's a whole audio, but somehow the arrangement of them, you know, will conjure up a a vision, a vision. So,
1: and how do visuals impact your composing?
2: Mm. Um, usually, usually, if I've seen something um, rather striking, or if I've, I've been in in a situation, like um, for example, I, w- I did this music residency up at Omi. It's called Art Omi International Music Musicians Residency. This was back in two thousand and seven. It's a little artist colony. Um, up, um, kind of upstate New York. And so I got to hang out in the middle of this just beautiful, beautiful, lush, rolling hills and the deer and there was all these open air barns with like little pianos stuck inside them i'm like oh my god i'm in heaven you know (laughs) um and then at you know one o'clock somebody would you know a truck would pull up and then you'd have like this beautiful lunch served to you in a barn and at seven o'clock up at the main house you have this all organic meal delivered and then you you know hang out with these 10 people from all over the world and
0: can and we and go just, do just that right to say,
2: Oh, it was <laughs> amazing. It was so amazing. And so while I was up there, um, you know, I would just find a piano and would just write. So literally I'm, I'm playing and I'm surrounded by, you know, green, lush hills and, and apple trees. And, and so that obviously just in like, would just kind of come out because I was almost like playing the environment, um, and then writing it down.
1: You're less likely to write like a suite of death metal. Music exactly, exactly. Music, yeah. yeah, that's later, later. Right. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's my next album. <laughs> right, exactly. Sorry, I didn't want to give anything away there. Oh no. Yes. I should
1: mention you're dressed completely in black leather and spikes right yes, now. As we're
2: doing this yes, yes, as but. always, as always.
1: Well, that's, do you, so when you, uh, you've done things with street art too, is that? right? Did I read someplace or photographs? of. Streaming? Yeah, that
2: was, that was the suite with the, right. With the with photos. The, okay. Yeah, and so
1: I, how, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no. how, how related, like how directly related to the content of the photos rather than just the mood of the photos mm. was the music?
2: Mm. Well, that, that particular suite, I think it was more, it was more the mood. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've done some, some projects where, um, people will write this, Like a visual score and would have like squiggles and, and, and all sorts of directions and make it, you know, make it into a piece of art in itself. And then there'll be, you know, seven or ten of us. And then it's like, all right, play that go. (laughs) So, um, yeah. So I've done, I've done a little bit of that, but, um, in terms of my own kind of combining the visual projects, um, another one that I, I did was a composer friend of mine put together this festival. It was, um, I think, called the New York Film – I forget, New Film Festival. It was just – this is one-off thing that happened. And there was this um, award-winning Australian short film called The Projectionist. And basically, this whole festival was um, four composers performing a live score to the same – um, short film oh wow but they sh- so they showed the same film f- like four times in a row but had four completely different treatments of the oh, music which idea. was really cool which was really cool um and i remember um actually writing the music for that and seeing the visual and i'm writing and i just Said, I love this, and I just like <laughs> talk to myself in my apartment like a crazy person. But I really did like it was it was so much fun. And um, the piece that I wrote for that is is not on the record, but it's it's one of the more like one of my favourites, I guess, <laughs> um, of the tunes that I've written. So like little little ideas from that. I've kind of kept and, and put into a tune that I thought maybe would be good in a, in a band context, but I haven't actually played that in public yet.
1: So it sounds like film writing might be something that mm-hmm. you were film scoring, something that you'd like to yeah. pursue. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I would. Um, it, but in terms of like doing all the, the like kind of the background cues and things like that, I think that might, you know, kill me slowly. Yeah. It
1: sounds like it's incredibly detailed.
2: Right. Right. In and somebody. I have, I have some friends that are in, in that business. Um, but I think. You know, licensing my music to that would be good. I mean, I've got, you know, a few things in the works. There's, um, one of my tunes from the record is going to be in a movie in Australia next year. And, um, I think, um, another one of my compositions is going to be on, like on a jingle, you know, in a state of Australia. So the little, little tiny things, well, you know, great. are happening. So, um, that's, um, that's really what I'm trying to do is because um, I've formed the uh, Little Mystery Records, my own um, record label. And so all the music that I'm going to release on it, at least for the beginning, is quite cinematic, I guess, in nature. So it would be suitable for licensing. And, you know, hopefully I can, you know, get some rent money that way. <laughs>
1: Ah, uh, it's a romantic vision. <laughs> oh, have, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes.
2: How am I going to pay my rent? Well, number one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Stop buying so much coffee. <laughs> yes.
1: Um, so I think I stopped you uh, talking about other things that you're involved with besides Darcy's mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Um I'm in um, the Diva Jazz Orchestra, which is an all-female big band that's been um, going for about 20 years. So, um, yeah, have definitely... Um, had the opportunity to play lots of cool gigs in random places <laughs> <laughs> with that band and then, you know, get to share the stage with people like Marlena Shaw and Carmen Bradford and Anne Hampton Calloway and, um yeah, just hang out with a, a bunch of really cool people. That's fantastic. Yeah.
1: mentioned uh, earlier talking about finding the right studio to record your record and mm-hmm. which did you eventually mm-hmm.
2: choose well i chose systems 2 in in brooklyn and they were fantastic i mean that's there and they have a beautiful piano and um, they're very professional and and organized and everything's set up when you arrive and you know i mean and again that was just a gut feeling when i'd actually um i i recorded there a couple of times um, before, like, with other people's projects before I actually recorded my own. Um, but in terms of the, the engineer to, um, mix and master, I'm a huge ECM fan and I've always loved the sound, um, um, from, from Rainbow Studio. So, um, I went on a bit of a mission and went to Norway and worked with Jan Erik Kungshog who was recorded, um, and mixed, you know, I would say I think it's something like ninety five percent of all yeah, it's like ECM. A I mean, yeah, it's it's, unbelievable. it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, so that in itself was fantastic. That was another like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is awesome kind
1: of moments. Um, and, and what was that? How did you actually get him mm, to even agree to do that? How does that work? I, Can
2: you I, just
0: hire his time, I, or just...
2: yeah, I just asked. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, and I, I had some friends that had worked with him. Um, before, and so, uh, Secret Society was in Europe. Um, and so I just organized a little, you know, a few extra days and popped over to Norway and, and worked with him. And that was absolutely incredible. And then flew back.
1: <laughs> and uh, when he was listening to mm-hmm. the record, did mm-hmm. he hear things in a way you hadn't heard before?
2: Um,
1: or is that at the think,
2: point? I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think for, I think what he did that was the most amazing thing was that, I mean, I thought the, the actual bass sounds that we got from systems two were, were really good. And he even complimented that the quality was really good. So that was a good sign. But then, you know, being behind the board with him and then just watching him work and then he just EQing like each instrument. And then you can just hear it, hear it like the sound just kind of bloom. And that was amazing. That was. I was, it was like like sprinkling magic dust or something. Like it was just so incredible. So that's really um, what he brought to it. And then he would, you know, listen to it and then kind of mix it as as he went along. Um,
1: and yeah. were you kind of highlighting things or making comments or steering the ship a little? Yeah, I more?
2: mean, I was a little bit shy, a little bit shy about it because I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe he's sitting right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a geek because I used to, I used to be a sound engineer. I worked, I worked, um, you know, for a few years and did a degree in it and all sorts of crazy things.
1: Um, do I remember reading that it was through that that you first heard a Miles Davis record or some somehow sound engineer related?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I think that was when I was moving from, from sound engineering to being a trumpet player. Okay. Um, and so a job had just finished and I'm like, I, you know, I was, I tried so hard to, Kind of get my foot in the door in that industry and it just, it wasn't happening. And so I went over to my friend's place for coffee and cake, <laughs> which I do quite often. <laughs> and <laughs> um, this is a long time ago now, but I, you know, people don't change. Um, and I said, what am I going to do? She's like, why don't you move to Melbourne and study, study trumpet, study improv? I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> I'm like, I'll move in a month. And I did. Like I packed up, I lived in Sydney at the time. I packed up all my stuff in my car. And then just drove, you know, 400 miles and I moved eight months before the audition. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had, I had, I had two, yeah, I think I was about 19 at the time. I had, oh, no, a little bit older, 20, 21, 22 maybe. Um, I had two jazz albums. I had, I had kind of blue and, um, take five. And so my practice consisted of just playing along with those albums so for eight months for eight months yeah <laughs> nice. yeah not solidly there was a lot of a <laughs> lot of uh cake and coffee to be had um but yeah but miraculously i got in and so then yeah did that yeah did that degree and then kind of one thing led to another and i came to new york for a, a vacation and um ended up meeting a whole bunch of people and someone said hey you should do your master's at manhattan school and So, and then I walked in and I just had this feeling. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to go here. It was one of those overwhelming. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, (laughs) how am I going to do this? This is all a bit nuts. But it happened. So, you know, here I am. So, it's a definitely a kind of an accidental career of sorts. It's like this crazy, crazy path. And every time I've tried to do other things other than music, it just – you know, something happens and I'm, you know, back behind the trumpet again. <laughs> <laughs> You're
1: sounding so, very Al Pacino in sorry. the Godfather film right yes. now. Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> It's only redeeming quality, is that quote. Right? Every time you try to get out, they pull you back in. Right. Uh, well, my guest is Nadia Nordhaus, and uh, her eponymous CD is definitely one of my favorite things of the year. It's really just a fantastic record, and I'm, I'm so glad it came out finally. Thank and, you. Uh, Thank I'm you so you much. I'm glad you on the show. Thanks for Thank being here. Thank you
2: so much for having me.
1: That's music from Nadia Nordhaus. Uh, By the way, I should mention about Nadia's name. Uh, If you look at Nadia's name and then you hear me say Nadia's name, you will quickly realize uh, that although her name is not in French, much like French, all of the letters are silent. So uh, that's why it doesn't look anything like it or doesn't sound anything like it looks Nadia Nordhaus' new album comes out soon. Don't forget that uh, tonight at 9 and 10.30, she's at the Jazz Gallery here in New York City, September twentieth, two 2012, with a fantastic band playing music from the record. What else do you need to know? I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session here until the end of October, and then all the episodes will be online in perpetuity, which I think means forever, right? Thank you to Matt Rock. To Murat Verdi and to Kyle Quass for sponsoring the show. Thank you to you for listening. And now, if you would please get out there and support live jazz, whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time. Oh, you know what else? Uh, today, as you're listening to this, I if it's the if it's either the 20th or the 21st, I am on a bus to Mississippi. So the next one of these shows, I'll be recording the intro for in Mississippi, and then I'll be in Alabama for quite a while, and then who knows where. But uh, if you're looking for me head to Jackson, Mississippi. So anyway, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.
0: everybody bye bye bye